Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarna Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 92 of the podcast, the topic is the future of vertical farming. Our guest is Eddie Badrina, CEO of Eden Green. In this conversation, we talk about whether indoor grown food is equally healthy. How has the space of vertical farming emerged? We discuss the demand for organic food, environmental concerns, soil quality depletion, groundwater depletion, and chemical pollution. Eddie explains the main distinctions and concepts, including greenhouses, hydroponics, aeroponics, aquaponic, vertical farming, and the various growth vectors, such as greenhouse, shipping containers, skyscrapers, or warehouses. We discuss sensors, climate control, light-emitting diodes, and LED lighting, and how do you define the vertical farming market? Who are the players? Which disruption forces are most actively influencing the field of vertical farming right now? How does he stay up to date? How does he recommend my listeners and I stay up to date? Looking at the next decade, I ask Eddie what he thinks will happen to vertical farming. We discuss high-yield local food production in inner cities, near deserts, on islands, or in space, and beyond. Eddie, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking agriculture. I'm, I'm excited to be, to be talking with you. It's been an interesting, uh, busy past week and a half for me with our uh, latest round of, of fundraising. So it's a... It's uh, you're you're catching me right at the right time. Well, let's talk more about all of those things, uh, Eddie. So you know you're you're an interesting CEO of a vertical farming company. We we I think we covered that you and I in our little <laughs> prep call. I wanted to sh- maybe share that a little with our uh, listeners. So y- you have a master's in public affairs and international affairs, and and indeed you've been doing a lot of international work and uh, a bachelor in psychology. And and you shared with me that Texas A and M was the only techie part of your education. I mean, the uh, the actual school itself. How uh, at all did this happen that you got into vertical farming? Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of an odd duck, and uh, and That's admitted, right. <laughs> admittedly so. Uh, I, I'm not your uh, I'm not your typical when you go to college students and say, hey, this is how you do a career. That that is, I, I'm not that person. Uh, so, uh, I, I got into it, uh, a little bit of backstory. So, uh, A&M degree in psychology, like you said, uh, had a chance to go to the master's program there in public administration, international affairs. And that really, uh, that really sort of piqued my interest and, uh, and grew my love for all things, uh, macro strategy and, uh, and, uh, just from a geopolitical point of view, just a, a, a world view of that. So, uh, spent some time up in DC, uh, both at the State Department as well as at the White House, and uh, I got a good overview of uh, the domestic and the international needs. And one of them that came up was uh, just the the ongoing struggle to have consistent food supply. Uh, I. I really, I addressed it from a domestic policy issue, but then when I came back to Texas, I went into the private sector and went into something totally different, uh, which was um, 
a digital ad agency, a MarTech marketing technology company that I started in 2010 uh, and uh, started that from scratch, bootstrapped it, uh, grew it to a size where it was able, we were able to be acquired in 2016, uh, reacquired it uh, f- from, from the company uh, 11 months later, and then, uh, and then spun it back up. So I, I, all throughout those, uh, throws, you know, 15 years of, of career, I got a chance to uh, ha- understand how to run organizations well, uh, understand how to, how to run a startup uh, to be scrappy and not to be uh, so corporate minded. Uh, and, then, and then really, you know, understood the world of finance, understood the world of investor relations and fundraising. Uh, and, and so that's where it brought me to this. Uh, I had a chance to step back from BuzzShift, which was my, my marketing company, uh, and really take a look at what I wanted to do for the next, for the second half of my career, if you will. And, uh, and the three things that really stuck out to me were, uh, one, I wanted to do hardware software. I had done professional services, been there, done that, got the M&A t-shirt. Uh, and so I wanted to do something different uh, and apply my skills there. Uh, the second was I wanted to uh, have a level of impact on society and my community that was exponential to uh, to my input. So for every one uh, unit of input of effort that I put in, I wanted to have a 10 or 20x societal impact. And then the third is I wanted to build what's known as a redemptive organization. And it's one where uh, where the leaders eat last, uh, they're sacrificial in nature. It's where employees are treated generously. Uh, and it's where the community and society around them is not just, uh, is not exploited. It's not even just advanced, but it's renewed and it's redeemed. And so, uh, uh, you know, fortunately, I was able to take a survey of uh, with the companies out there and, and uh, just had some colleagues and friends walk alongside me and uh, eating green came up as a possibility uh, in 2019 and became a reality. And it checked all three of those boxes that I was looking for. And from their point of view, I checked the box of uh, he's, I've run a startup. Uh, I've run it successfully. I know how to exit uh, and I know how to, uh, how to take something to market, to find a product market fit and, uh, and find the right business model. So that's what I've been doing for the past year and a half is, uh, is taking this technology, which is patented, uh, but then getting out of the technology and really putting a business model around it that works uh, that is scalable, uh, that's attractive to uh, additional investment, and then uh, to the market, obviously, as well, and then taking it to market. You know that uh, that's that's fa- uh, fantastic because vertical farming, right? It, it, maybe you can, since you've had a quick learning curve on on this entire topic yourself, hmm. give give me a sense of how the topic itself emerged. So that clearly, there's been demand for. Food, you know, uh, local food, and and there's the environmental concern, of course, and then there's the technology element in the fact that you you kind of have to make it possible, right. and then the scale, right? I mean, I'm sure it was experimental for for a while, and and then then obviously um, the increasing pollution. G- give me a sense of what are the factors that were the most important in creating this as a startup industry, and 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 now. Uh, arguably, right, coming to fruition as a scalable industry. What are the factors that made this emerge? 
Yeah. So, so macro factors uh, that have really contributed to, uh, to vertical farming uh, and just enclosed uh, what we call CEA, controlled environment agriculture. Uh, one is a rise in population uh, and a trend towards urban areas. So when you have a rise in population and they're trending towards urban areas, uh, you run into a density problem, both the density in terms of population growth, uh, as well as density in terms of uh, food sources uh, in geographic relation to those population centers. So uh, you've got less people out on, you know, on the perimeters, on the peripherals of urban, uh, the, the urban uh, geography, and, uh, and the farms are becoming further and further away from those uh, population centers. So you've got this huge supply chain uh, length uh, that, uh, that, is, that is occurring. And here in the United States, we're seeing it, you know, a, a lot of uh, the lettuce and leafy greens come from the Salinas Valley in California just because of its, um, its uh, climate as well as its, uh, the, the richness of the soil there. But the reality is it's some 2,000 miles away from Texas and more twice that from the East Coast, right? Yeah. So uh, you've got this long, long supply chain to really dense population. And then on the other piece from a, from a rise, you've got a, a rise in the demand for locally grown food. And you just got a rise in demand for healthy food, right? Nutritious food. And, uh, and that's not going away anytime soon. And the rise is not linear to the population growth. It's actually uh, curving upward in relation to the population growth. So you've got those two factors that are going upwards. <clears throat> and then on the other end, in terms of the supply, uh, on, on the other end of the supply chain, you've got uh, a uh, decreasing or static supply of food even if it were static in the best case circumstances, static, you, you're trying to pipe it through this fragile and long supply chain. So, but in, in, in one of the cases we're seeing, uh, you know, more internationally than domestically is you've got an erosion of topsoil. <clears throat> you've got uh, unusable land uh, due to pollution and uh, just due to, you know, arable land. And so what you've got is this declining supply. Uh, and it's really regional and local in nature, right? If you're living 200 miles from Salinas Valley, you're golden. But if you're 2,000 or 4,000 miles away from Salinas Valley, it doesn't really help. So uh, there's these broad sweeping generalizations that you see on the news of, oh, we have, we have as much supply as we need. We just can't get it to people. Or we've got no supply and you know it, it everyone's starving and and it's somewhere in between it's very a regional and local solution which you know you've got a regional and local solution to the supply chain and you've also got the regional and local demand for healthy food yeah therein lies the solution right so uh, how have we solved for it in the past well we've solved for it in the past by uh, flat tray greenhouses which you see they're all the rage today uh, flat tray greenhouses, uh, as innovative as they want to call them, they're still flat trays, which are about 20 years old. Uh, and those still require a lot of land. Uh, and, and so you, you've got that problem. And then you've got the little, you know, the mom and pop community gardens. You've got the tower gardens and the patio, things that you can stick on your patios. Those aren't really scalable to the folks who need it the most. Uh, it's not a, it's, it doesn't meet the demands of the general population. 
Uh, so neither, none of those have filled the gap until, you know, until now. And that's, that's, that's where we fit in and try to solve that problem. Uh, we, we've got our, our greenhouses are dense enough. We're working in cubic feet because we're tiring up to 18 feet in the air, even sometimes more uh, of these vertical towers. So we've got this density uh, solved and because uh, it's dense and it's because it's a one and a half acre uh, footprint, then they can be put almost anywhere in the world, especially in urban populations. You know, that's super interesting. You mentioned greenhouses and it's almost, it's perplexing to me that that technology, at least in terms of its just one layer structure has stayed, stayed that way. It's sort of surprising that this idea of farming vertically hasn't kind of taken off before. But, but in any case, what are some of the other distinct ways that uh, the industry is trying to innovate in? So greenhouses, I'm sure there's innovation within the sector of greenhouses or within the concept. Then there's hydroponics in, right. in and of itself, which, you know, growing with water. Uh, aeroponics, I don't know too much about it. Um, and, and, and then, so, and then you have the different growth vectors themselves and you, you've pointed out greenhouse, but there's also shipping containers and warehouses. And so can you, can you line up the different factors that go into a decision on how to grow, uh, you know, how to farm? Sure. So, uh, the, the different, if, if you put a matrix of, uh, growing solutions, if you will, you've got your, you've got your traditional farms, right? And the pros to a traditional farm are, uh, you, the price per square foot of land is very low. Uh, your, your economics look a lot better and, um, you know, and, and it's, uh, and it's really down to a price deal. Uh, the, the cons are that amount of land, uh, has to be located far away from an urban center. Uh, the, also the cons are seasonality. Uh, the cons are uh, external uh, exposure to the elements, whether it's uh, weather patterns, whether it's uh, runoff from surrounding farms, whether it's you know, things in the air, any environmental, and then pests, pests and, and everything that goes with them, uh, both the pests themselves as well as the controls for them, pesticides. So those are, those are some pretty heavy pros and cons. <clears throat> so, you know, the, the next one on the rung, if you will, is, uh, are your flat tray greenhouses and the flat tray greenhouses are, 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 uh, less so economically than farms, but they're still pretty good. They're consistent. Uh, they are, um, you know, they're enclosed. So they solve for some of the cons of a traditional farm. Uh, the, the, the cons of a flat tray greenhouse are that, uh, you still from a, uh, from a, um, density factor, they're working in square feet and not cubic feet. So you still need uh, quite a bit of land, uh, which means they still need to be, you know, they can't be in the middle of the city because uh, 35 acres of farming of traditional farms is equal roughly to about five to seven acres of your most innovative flat tray greenhouse. Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> and then, uh, and then because of seasonality, uh, you need a lot of lights to be for it to be commercially viable. Uh, to to have the same type and size and flavor profile of plants year round, you need complementary lighting. And complementary lighting over five acres is a lot of capex. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, 
there's one in in uh, in Kentucky called App Harvest, and sixty acre greenhouse size. They spent fifteen million dollars just on lights. So, uh, so just not not to interrupt your flow yeah. here, but what about the Dutch and and why have they? Mm-hmm. You know, in Europe, the situation, Northern Europe at least, the situation yeah. is slightly different because these greenhouses have been arguably perfected, and and uh, the natural surroundings are, I guess, favorable uh, so far, I guess, until right. you really run out of land. So eventually this will also become necessary there. But they seem to have created over some time and expertise in, in, in the, what you call flat tray greenhouses. Mm-hmm. Is that over time going to go away or, or is it just a different situation there in Northern Europe? It's a different situation because they have, like you said, they have the land and they're, they're set up uh, in terms of uh, their cities aren't nearly as big as our cities uh, or as cities in Asia, right? Or as cities in Africa. Uh, you know, you look at the top 10 cities around in terms of population. I don't think any one of them is in, is in Europe and, and it's not Northern Europe. So uh, it, it really is a, geographically again it's a it's a regional problem uh and a local problem that requires local solutions and for much of northern europe that has that solution has done just fine and and you're right the dutch and and the french too have really perfected greenhouse technology Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's worked really well for them and greenhouses have those flat tray greenhouses that they've built and they run are are very consistent uh, and they're season agnostic. So there's there's some great pros to that. Uh, so it seems to in, me that uh, here in the US, there's also another factor that surely you must be riding on right now. I, I, I don't want to call it the Biden factor, but I mean, it's the, the, the fact that the US seems to be somewhat waking up to this, um, you know, I, I don't know what you should call it, but this growing awareness that, uh, you know, things haven't been enormously sustainable all across. Right. Uh, industry uh, here, and that there's opportunity um, to change that actually fairly short term. Yeah, more, more than sustainability, I would call it food, uh, food security and food independence. Also, right. Right. Uh, I, I think, you know, what we're seeing with the pandemic, what it accelerated in terms of trends, uh, is it accelerated the fragility of the supply chain and it accelerated the the uh, exposure of uh, certain certain uh, groups of people not having access to nutritious foods uh, and you having runs on everything with the slightest, you know, uh, uh, the slightest uh, outbreak in, uh, you know, in bacteria over in Salinas Valley or the slightest change in weather patterns. So I think that's what you're seeing and what the U.S. is seeing and how, how that, you know, the response has been, okay, in terms of infrastructure. And if, if you look at investments now, uh, you know, especially with the, the passage of this last uh, set of laws, it's really focused on infrastructure. And one part of that infrastructure is, uh, is the food itself. It's not even supply chain, it's the food sourcing. Right. So wh- how, did, how did your business then uh, capture this, the, this market? And what, you know, what is your uh, kind of claim to fame there? Is it the efficiency of the technology itself, or is it a sort of a combination of the concept? So the the actual uh, acreage and the optimization within this uh, space. I mean, you have mastered a certain 
square, uh, you know, cubic footage. Uh, right. the, you have mastered the microclimate of a certain micro, you know, a certain square, uh, you know, cubic footage. It seems like that that that's what you're doing. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's not that dissimilar to uh, to a molecular structure in that uh, it, it all starts with that small little microclimate that we have and that we've patented the technology on. Uh, if so, so you know, in a in a nutshell, this this the patent is around these vertical towers and how we control uh, all the growing factors around each individual plant. So, uh, water flow, water temperature. Uh, nutrient mix, um, the the uh, uh, air, uh, CO two, uh, air temperature, uh, light, right, uh, and amount of light as well as spectrum of light, all of those are factors that we control on this on each in, on the individual level of the plant, uh, and so that that comes into play because it's it forces all sorts of efficiencies. Uh, into the system if you're only controlling for that microclimate. So imagine I, I, a good analogy is uh, for air, at least. Imagine if you had um, in your house, you had instead of an HVAC system that controlled the entire house, you had your own personal AC and heating unit, right? Uh, and you, it went around with you as on your, it was a backpack, if you will. So everywhere you went, the, the air was conditioned around you, but everywhere else, the house could be 85 degrees and you would be just fine. Right. So, so then you look at the energy levels to control that all of a sudden you've gone from trying to, uh, trying to condition, uh, the cubic feet of your entire house down to, you know, the, uh, six foot by two foot, uh, you know, radius around yourself, right? Or diameter around yourself. That's a huge, huge uh, amount of savings in terms of energy costs. Now you get five of you, uh, you know, if, if I had that in my household and I have, I have a family of five, if we had five of us all together sitting around the dinner table with our air conditioning units, well, there's a, there's a, a byproduct, a by, you know, a, a, a byproduct effect of that, which is, that area around our dining table is all of a sudden, you know, rel conditioned relative to us because it's all adding together. Again, the rest of the house is still 85 degrees. That's essentially what we're doing in our greenhouses is we're conditioning uh, roughly one fifth. We only condition one fifth of the greenhouse cubic uh, space uh, around those plant spots. And then everything else uh, is a happy byproduct of that conditioning. And if you're only conditioning one one fifth of that cubic space, you're you're uh, it's not linear, but it is very very similar to the amount of electricity costs, light electricity, air handling, all those uh, inputs that you would have in a normal either vertical farming, which is fully enclosed uh, without sunlight, or or even a a greenhouse, a flat tray greenhouse. I, I want to move uh, shortly to talk a little bit about the, about the market itself. But you know, as a as a parlay to that discussion, what what are the kinds of foods that lend themselves to being grown this way, and and what are the foods that perhaps are not going to be grown in, in vertical uh, farming in the near future? So, Tron, you bring up a good point. Uh, I think a lot of folks look at us and others as the silver bullet for food. And for nutritious foods, and and I I'll be the first to say we're not that we're going to be a part of the solution. 
um, we're not interested in growing grains. We're not interested in growing really woody, stemmy type plants. Uh, our our uh, ability to grow excels in the areas of leafy greens, uh, lettuce, arugula, spinach, kale, uh, and then you know, and then uh, herbs like mint, basil, thyme, uh, rosemary, uh, and then onto things like strawberries, right? Uh, and then you've got your your hemp and cannabis, which is a whole different story, hmm. uh, but, but they grow very well in our system as well. But when you when you look at that broad that that spectrum of uh, plants, you're looking at around, I would say 50 plus varietals that are commercially viable. Now we can grow tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers uh, all day long in our system. Uh, peppers actually uh, are profitable. When you get to tomatoes and cucumbers uh, in our system specifically, uh, from a commercially viable standpoint, I think it's uh, we're still trying to uh, tweak the system to make it so the volume and the price in the market matches up with the operating costs and the grow costs. Eddie, uh, I, I get excited when I hear these things, just not, not even just in terms of the, the global market situation per se, but even just if you think of it, moving one of your units into a development situation where they have serious, serious drought or, or, or some other problem, yet what they would have to have some stable electricity, I'm assuming, or it's sure. an energy source. You know, is that even in your scope at all? I know you, you want to change the world, or are we talking here about just the American market short term? No, I, I think uh, our vision is to have, and again, I'm come from a technology background, but our vision is to have a mesh network of these independently run greenhouses. Uh, that are that are independently owned and operated, but they collaborate in terms of food supply, in terms of technology, in terms of innovation. But I can I can absolutely foresee these in uh, you know because they're they're such great economic units. If you can imagine for a second, uh, so one of the boards uh, that I'm on uh, a nonprofit board is called Seed Effect, and it does uh, savings groups and microfinance in uh, refugee camps in northern Uganda. Uh, and, and if you look at these refugee camps nowadays, uh, whether it's Northern Uganda or Jordan or anywhere else, uh, th they are not the refugee camps that we are, uh, uh, like have viewed in the past in that people are there for 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. And they have to create their own market economies in those refugee camps. Uh, and they're doing it just sheerly out of survival, right? So it was where Seed Effect is addressing from a savings group and from a, 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 a you know, a, a, a loan and finance perspective. I think there's room to have uh, greenhouses, eating green greenhouses in these uh, refugee camps run by the refugees themselves, maybe owned by the UNHCR, uh, right. owned by USAID. Some, because it, it, if you look at the costs, and again, this is where my international uh, experience comes into play. If you look at the cost per person uh, in a refugee camp for the UN and the assorted agencies to support them per year, it's on the average, I want to say it around $110,000 per person. That is not sustainable, Tron. It's just not. 
for for the global uh, community. So there's got to be better ways knowing the parameters in place of they're going to be there, uh, you know, and external factors out of our control, why they're there in the first place. Uh, how can we solve for that in a much more uh, cost-efficient manner? And, and the solve is to empower them to grow their own food, to employ themselves, uh, and then to distribute that. I mean, I, I would much rather UN and donor money go towards uh, a greenhouse that can be built and subsidize the entire output of that, uh, th- that would be much more cost efficient uh, than, than uh, this current support structure that's in place for those refugees. So that's just one example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I just got so fascinated by thinking about the the, the long term kind of application of of your concept as you're sort of productizing it, but but even even in the U.S. Right, the the market seems to be growing, uh, and the various studies out there. But certainly, one study I saw from Emergent was saying, you know, eleven billion dollar market by 2027 which is not very far away. It's not. And, and growing growing at a at a twenty percent. Uh, even what are some of the challenges the market, the players? Because there's, you know, there's obviously more, more than you out there, and they have various Absolutely. models: uh, Aero Farms, Bright Farms, all these guys. Um, what are, I mean, traditionally, the high upfront cost, which I mean, you were pointing to yes. the UN example. Somebody has to say, "Hey, I'm, you know, I'm footing that first bill." Right. Right. So, so there, there are a couple of big challenges. One is, uh, yeah, you, you got it right. The capex, the capital expenditures on the upfront. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other is the operational expenditures. Uh, but what really those are functions of are, uh, are the cost to the consumer and current models right now, uh, they're being basically being subsidized to sell it to the consumers. I mean, they're they're losing money on every clamshell, plastic clamshell that they ship out the door. Uh, uh, most of these, uh, most of these uh, other, uh, you know, competitors, because their capex and their opex are so high, and and so that's been the biggest challenge: is how do you get something that's at a price point that makes sense to the consumer, right? Uh, and and I would say that is the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is is operational and capital expenditures to get it to a price point that makes sense. Because the market will only bear a certain price point for lettuce, it will only bear a certain price point for basil and for arugula and for kale. So uh, to get those efficiencies down uh, is is a big challenge. And that's where I think you know the the founders of this company who uh, you know who are. Uh, respectively, our, our CTO and our COO, uh, Jacques and Eugene Van Buren, they, they had to start in South Africa from scratch. They literally started in their garage. And so when you're in South Africa and you're starting from scratch, you're not building with tons of money being thrown your way. You have to do it in a scrappy manner and you have to build it from scratch thinking about economic, economic profitability. And so I, I think that's the biggest difference with us is our greenhouse units. If you, if you can sell all that offtake, all of that, that harvest uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in the industry, it's known as offtake contracts. But if you can sell all of that harvest, those greenhouse units are economically profitable. Their, mm-hmm. their gross margins are you know, anywhere from 35 to 40%. Um, that is a far cry from a lot of the other folks out there who are have 
100, 200, 300 million dollars of funding. Uh, and they're just burning through cash because they, they are figuring out the technology first and then, uh, and then trying to determine uh, economic modeling later. Whereas uh, in our case, we did that hand in hand. So we, knew, we had to know going into it, the brothers had to know going into it that it would be economically sustainable. I'm curious about some of the other disruptive factors that are working in your favor or are a bit challenging. So on the regulatory front, are there any challenges there or any opportunities for for getting this subsidized under some sort of scheme? Yeah, so you know the the challenges uh, really is education. And this this industry is so new and then what we're doing is new within the new industry that I think regulators are just having a hard time getting their hands around it. And when I say regulators, I mean, local, local agencies. And, uh, you know, they, they look at us and like, wait, so you're, uh, you're an acre and a half large, but your water outtake, uh, you know, your water consumption is equal to two households. That's it. One of our acre and a half greenhouse only consumes 90,000 gallons of water a year. Your household and my household consume forty-five thousand gallons of water of your a, a piece, right? To to produce fifty tons of leafy greens, I mean that that boggles their mind. It's almost too good to be true for them. So then, you know, the, then they try to. You can't put it in an, your normal industrial or agri you know agricultural model in terms of uh, in terms of how you. Um, uh, how you regulate the land, right? How you permit all the permits and regulations. So there really is a learning curve on on local agencies and local permitting on how how our um, how efficient our greenhouses are. And then I would say, you know, the other biggest challenge is, and it's in our favor, like you said, but uh, agriculture is is not just the supply chain, but the actual production is now considered infrastructure. If we think about the more and more the demand is that everyone have access to nutritious foods, the more that'll go from, uh, from uh, commercial to infrastructure. Yeah. And that plays right into where we are because we are really in, we're a greenhouse as a model. We're an infrastructure play. Uh, we put ourselves, you know, from an ESG type investment, we put ourselves right there with uh, wind and solar uh, in terms of uh, just how, uh, how cutting edge, there's still a lot of kinks to be worked out in the regulatory and in the industry, but uh, we really think that's where it's headed long-term. You know, it's interesting. I don't know, I keep getting all these uh, strange ideas when I listen to you, but it seems to me that they're going to call you when we go to Mars and the moon, right? I because hope so. They're going to have to feed people there yeah. in, in, a, in a constrained environment. So, I mean, controlling all the variables sounds like uh, up your, your alley. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, controlling all the variables, including uh, size and density is, is really where we excel, right? Uh, and, you know, and again, we're, if, if uh, there are countries that are uh, constrained by water, uh, but they're not constrained by land, then, you know, it's, th we, we don't compete as well uh, as, you know, flat tray greenhouses. Uh, but, but if, man, if they are uh, density constrained in terms of population, uh, their demand, consumer demand is for locally grown food and they have real water issues. Uh, we, put, we play right, right into that. 
How do you work around deserts? I, I was reading about the amounts, uh, the Sinai Desert project, where people are trying to see if they can, you know, re regreen that entire desert and and make yeah. it a new t- type of ecosystem. I mean, I mean, I, I would just imagine that uh, you know, long term as a as an infrastructure play, this this model would would really go very well around deserts. It it does, um, you know, for for the deserts that are um, that are like Israel, Israel is a good example of a landlocked, uh, very arid type of environment, right? They don't have a lot of arable land. Uh, it's very rocky, right? Unless you're by, uh, uh, by the coast. Uh, and so there's just not a lot of usable land. So, so ours, uh, our solution works really, really well. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have, you know, call it a Saudi Arabia. They have tons of land. They don't, you know, the density factor is not that um, concerning to them in as much as it's, uh, as it's food independence in as much as it's uh, water conservation. And we can play in those arenas, but, uh, you know, you know, candidly, uh, I look at them and I think, wow, uh, you know, you're probably for at least for the next 10 or 15 years, you, you may be good to go with a flat tray greenhouse. It's not going to be nearly as efficient and you're going to have, uh, you're going to have water problems uh, for sure. Uh, but in terms of land usage, that's not really their concern. Yeah. So I do think as uh, water costs start to go up and water scarcity becomes more of an issue, things like ours will come into play, not from a density per se, the density is a, a feature, a function of it, but it's really from water usage. Uh, and uh, where it's not a concern right now, it will be a concern in, in you know, 10 or 15 years. Let's just talk some mechanics here. So you, I, I, and I'm reading some old data, I'm sure, but on a 1.5 acre site, this article claims that you could produce 900,000 leafy greens in a year yeah. and have a, between 11 and 15 harvests. That yeah. this would take 33 acres of traditional farmland and then using 98% less water. I mean, the number of harvests is, is sort of staggering. It, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And it goes back to that microclimate, right? So uh, the way we're able to do the, that amount of harvests is, is simply simple, but it's, uh, it's not easily solvable. It's simply because uh, when you control for all the factors and you give the plant exactly what it needs, when it needs it in terms of light, water, and nutrients, uh, and then the ambient temperature, they grow quickly. I mean, they grow very, very quickly. And so the average, uh, depending on the leafy green, the average uh, cycle, harvest cycles is anywhere from 20, 28 to 35 days, which is where you're getting your 11 to 13 harvests a year. Uh, and because it only takes a day or two for us to turn it around, take the plant out, clean out the, clean out the cup, and then, uh, and then plant the new seeds or the new uh, uh, seedlings in. So that's, that's, where, that's how we're able to do it. And these plants, I mean, they thrive. Uh, you know, the, even there's so many aspects to it, but plants love uh, a certain temperature, you know, 75 to 85 degrees, depending on the plant, but even more so plants love 67 to 70 degree water. It allows for the maximum amount of nutritional uptake, uh, as well as uh, it reduces the amount of pathogens because of the aeration of the water. Uh, And then the flow that we have uh, in one of our greenhouses from pump to plant to pump uh, in an acre and a half takes all of 90 seconds. 
Look, I'm I'm learning a lot here. Look, I'm a I'm a hobby gardener myself. I have my own little uh, kind of enclosed uh, uh, garden with you know it's all enclosed metal fencing to try to get some critters out. And I'm struggling, man, because this is yeah. tough, right? So you have critters you're it fighting, is. and then last year I got most of the critters out, although like a couple you know got in, but I'm essentially got out all the big critters. So at least you know all my. Uh, fruit wasn't just taken by the squirrels, right? But but I had pest problems. Yeah. And then last year I decided to go all organic and probably wasn't smart enough. Didn't find the right products and, and probably didn't have enough time. But I lost a lot of my harvest. Yeah. And for for you know what what, can, what have you learned or what does this system teach the everyday gardener? Is there anything to learn? I mean, I was picking up the temperature that I should be watering my plants if I could. Yeah. But we don't have all those tools available. But what are right. some like quick fix things that one can do as a hobby gardener to try to isolate some more factors, uh, you know, than the than is available in the wild? Because it seems to me there, I mean, I'm scratching my head at some of the things that are happening because you know I grew up in Europe and Norway, and nature here doesn't behave the same way. I'm I'm also forced to believe that some of the plants are are actually kind of conditioned. To to being uh, you know they're conditioned to pesticides actually and when yeah. you don't give it give that to them they they don't really seem to handle it very well so I have lots of questions yeah you know uh, those are a lot of the 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 intricate questions are probably uh, best left to my agronomist uh, and greenhouse <laughs> manager than to me um, but but I I can't so one of the things that you're highlighting is people often ask well why can't everyone do this and and you highlighted just the fact like all of those control factors and then trying to meet very picky consumer and retailer demands is just a tall tall task. Uh, and so that's why commercial scalability has been such an issue uh, at co- at scale, uh, as well as the cost to do that has been such an issue for the industry in the past. Uh, but then, you know, getting down to your to your specific questions, I think, uh, you know, the best thing people can do is honestly is to build little greenhouses um, and also to set your expectations right? Like we, we're able to do 11 to 13 harvests a year because we have complementary grow lights in addition to our sunlight. Um, mo- most people don't have grow lights, right? Uh, Should I go into grow their... lights? <laughs> I uh, thought about it. it. I mean, uh, it, the, this, uh, it'll get really expensive really quickly. I'll tell you that. Um, especially if you've got a, you know, to, to try to shrink this down, like if you can imagine, and I'm just, you know, my I'm neighbors just, probably wouldn't like it either because you know, yeah, the light exactly. would just show I, up everywhere. I'm just spitballing here, but you know, if you had a greenhouse and you put a, you put a set of a grow lights on top of it, uh, and then, you know, and then you used your, uh, organic pesticides, uh, pest control techniques within that greenhouse, I think that would, that would probably do the trick. Um, more so than having it exposed uh, just to the elements uh, and more so than just, you know, using, using your current pesticides without any other control factors, you really start to, once you start going down that rabbit hole, you really start to understand how many control factor, how many factors you have to control to really optimize for harvests. And then a corollary to what you said, plants know when it's winter, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like we've got, you know, we've got sunlight, full sunlight. We've got the grow lights all, you know, 
just honed in uh, with you know with our with our algorithms and with our control systems, and yet the plants in the winter tend to be a tiny bit smaller than the plants in the summer. They just know it's winter. It's bizarre, uh, but but I think it you know it speaks to uh, it speaks to the fact that at the end of the day you can't really control everything. We're just trying to control as much as possible. I wanted to get to the scale and 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 kind of your your vision for for becoming a, a little bit of an intel inside for for large social units essentially that need to produce whether it's universities or nation states or large organizations. I mean, currently, I'm assuming you're selling to retail or you're at least aspiring to sell to very very big retail chains that are kind of that's correct that have enormous demand. But you sort of you you alluded to me that there's another interesting market here that I just didn't really think of that. But but of course, if you're a municipality or or even a nation state like let's let's call it Israel or whatever it is, this is interesting. If if it really is an infrastructure where you can control the supply of food uh, against pandemics and climate changes and uh, all kinds of X factors that happens in regular agriculture. Yeah, you know, if you uh, if you take food subsidies to their logical end, you end up with government funded food sources in their entirety, right? Uh, and so it's the the leap from food subsidies to farmers to grants and subsidies for uh, operators and owners to these greenhouses to produce them to then the government just owning them themselves or the municipalities, right? Municipalities and regionals, authorities owning them themselves. It's not that big of a jump. So we think we can address all of those. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a dynamic market. Uh, regionally, some, some authorities really want resiliency. They want regional and city resiliency. Other ones are very free market. Uh, we, we think we can play in, in that entire gradient. Take us, take us to the future, Eddie, because we've talked a lot and I thought it was important to get the context about what this really is. And I really wanted to go deep into how you are doing things to the extent that you could share with us. But in the next 10 years or, or even, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly looking longer term. I have a big project looking at the next 50 years, mm-hmm. but even just the next 10, you said it's not a silver bullet. It's not the only answer, but it is a answer to local nutritious food in certain segments of the world, so of society and in, in the world, where is this going to end? What what percentage of food is going to be kind of artificially grown in some f- format in the next ten days, ten years? Uh, in the next ten years, I would say you know it sounds really small, but I would say anywhere from uh, you know three percent to 5% of all food grown will be, you know, will be in uh, these type of uh, controlled environment ag- agricultural systems. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's, that's, as, uh, that's a huge amount of produce. Oh, I think it sounds enormous. I mean, it just <laughs> it depends what the, you know, yeah. what the total is, of course. And, and, and uh, you know, and, and big for, number. You know, for, for, for eating green, our, our vision is that uh, there would be one of these in every country in the world. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's beyond uh, beyond scope to think that you know 162 of these would be 
uh, placed in uh, in different countries. If you think about island, you know, island economics, uh, these these belong as well. You know, uh, on a uh, on a on one of the island Pacific island nations as they do, you know, in in Dallas, Texas. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, they they have supply chain issues that we can't even fathom. I was right? just curious so, have you have you mapped the world according to who would have the biggest need? Because I mean, you know, if, if I'm if we're just thinking deserts, we're thinking yeah. wa- water. Well, any any water scarce area, right? You, yeah. Islands because of the supply issues, you know, and and just being islands. What are some other things that would would come out when you do that kind of analysis? Uh, so uh, so. Population dense, so you take the top largest, you know, 20 largest cities in the world. Those are all uh, right. viable uh, opportunities uh, for one of our greenhouses to be in. Uh, like he's, like I said before, landlocked states, land, landlocked nation states that are looking for food independence uh, and food security are, are others. Um, and then northern islands, states, like said, I'm assuming, right? So I grew up in Norway. Norway. I mean, certainly, you know, without greenhouses in, in the north of Europe or Canada or Alaska, you, you can't grow much. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, I think that those are uh, the seasonality conflicting with consumer demand for year round food, uh, and year round produce. Uh, those are, those are other places, right? So, uh, so the, the Northern climates, uh, are where those conflicts happen the most where uh, consumer consumer trends buck up against, uh, buck up against the seasons. And then, you know, uh, honestly, uh, there's a whole play around uh, here in the United States around Native American uh, tribes and their sovereignty, right? They, they've got their own uh, reservations and sovereign, uh, sovereign uh, systems that uh, they're trying to solve for their people. Uh, so, uh, I mean, the, that's what I that's what I'm really excited about our, our platform in particular, it's so nimble and flexible that can, it can be applied to a vast uh, variety of situational needs, uh, depending whether it's food independence, whether it's scarcity, whether it's water shortages, whether it's uh, just consumer trends and demands, uh, the, the flexibility uh, of our system allows to address all of those. Um, I, I, you're probably not going to give me pr- prices here, but like, you know, what what is the payback time on, on on investing in a unit like this? If you are an island or a country or any of these things that you know these entities we have been talking about, I mean, what is the um, payback time? Like, when? How soon are you going to see a profit? Let's say you have the uh, you know the capex, yeah, and so, you might be interested in this, right? So. Uh, if, if you're selling the entire offtake of the greenhouse, the, con, the, the harvest, uh, paybacks around four to six years. Hmm. Yeah. So po- population growth is high, right? And I was asking you, so 10 years, but w- what if we go 50 years into the future? And I don't know what's going to happen to population growth, but one could at least assume that it, you know, it certainly won't be much lower than, than it is now. Um, in, in that short of a, of a time frame, Yeah. So I think the pandemic, the pandemic has provided, I think this is very futuristic. I think the pandemic is a blip in the population growth. We've seen some, uh, uh, just because of, of people's isolation and, and inability to socialize, you've seen a little bit of a dip in terms of, uh, the reproduction rates, uh, as, as, as predicted, uh, for this past year. And then, you know, and then in terms of, uh, people, uh, 
moving to urban population centers. Uh, I think it slowed during the pandemic because people had to stay home and because at least here in the United States, you found more uh, ability to work remotely. But I think at the end of the day, people are still going to move towards uh, towards urban populations. And, and I don't think that'll slow down. I think it'll pick back up. So if you, if you take those two trends, population growth, and then, uh, and then the magnetism towards urban population centers, uh, I, I think, uh, I think you're going to see more of these and then, and then the consumer demand continuing to grow for locally, uh, locally sourced and nutritious foods. Uh, I, I think you'll see the demand for these to be, uh, the center of gravity to be around those, uh, those large urban populations. Interesting. Well, if people want to get into this and want to understand more or want to track uh, your space of the vertical farming market, what are some of your best bets to, to start tracking? You know, who are the influencers, uh, you know, apart from individual, apart from companies like yours, who's looking into the space and who, how, how would you, how do you stay up to date? Uh, so uh, I stay up to date uh, just reading things like, Vertical Farm Daily or Horda Daily uh, is one, but then also for your for your normal consumer of uh, information, you know, I would look just start looking at uh, ESG investments uh, and and their patterns and trends of the ESG investors where they're looking at. You'll get a good sense of uh, what how people are thinking about this space uh, in general. Uh, I think you know you you look to um, some of the bigger foundations, the Gates Foundation, uh, the uh, Rockefeller, um, Ford Foundation, uh, and then the UN, you look to see where their minds are at in terms of uh, addressing population growth and addressing uh, water, uh, water scarcity. Uh, I think you'll, you'll, those are, those are good places to start. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, that's where that's where I would begin, and then and then we're we're trying to educate a lot. It's one of uh, one of the directives I've had to our marketing team is to really educate folks on what are what is hydro like just what's hydroponics one hundred and one. What's vertical farming? Why is vertical farming you know the future? What it, just some of the basic education pieces, not to just get over the hump of understanding eating green, but just to get get people a better context for why we're doing what we're doing and the problem we're trying to solve. Because I don't think a lot of people even realize the problem exists. Uh, they're in their happy little bubble uh, until. Uh, until their local, you know, Chick Fil A or uh, you know, or or Whole Foods runs out of romaine lettuce, and then they start looking around, saying, "What is the problem?" Right. So, uh, so we want to educate folks, and 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 so we're we're producing more co- education content on eatinggreen.com. Well, that's certainly uh, quite useful. I find uh, I find the topic interesting and futuristic but obviously it's happening now it's not like it's vertical practical. farming is not tomorrow it's you, right. you guys are rolling it out you're not alone and uh it's uh it's going to be a part of the food picture absolutely absolutely well I, I thank you so much for sharing your your views and i hope we can stay in touch because I, I imagine that you guys will spread your tentacles a bit and it would be interesting to check back in and see who's buying into this because uh, it could go in all kinds of directions. So I'm, I'm sort of curious. I would love to, I would love to have a conversation six months uh, or, or a year from now and, uh, and look back and say, man, we, 
we were just scratching the surface in this conversation of, uh, of what happened or what could happen. So look forward to staying in touch. Very good. Well, thanks for being uh, on the show. All right. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 92 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronar Nunheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of vertical farming. In this conversation, we talked about whether indoor grown food is equally healthy. How has the space of vertical farming emerged? Looking at the next decade, I asked Eddie what he thinks will happen to vertical farming. My takeaway is that vertical farming is poised for growth, and I don't just mean that as a pun. There are legitimate reasons why food tech is exploding right now. Food and ag coupled with tech is necessary, exciting, and is becoming scalable. Can the costs of vertical farming come down? We will see vertical farms, or will we see vertical farms in every country and every municipality? Time will show. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 87 on performance food, episode 52 on the future of peer-to-peer, or episode 36 on the future of cultured meat. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.